the mind of Christ. And then, subtitle, Hidden Secrets to Practical Christianity. The cornerstone scripture of both the Jewish and the Christian faith is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 and 5. You've probably heard that many, many, many times. It is regarded as the Shema in Hebrew, which means here. Shema Israel, meaning here, O Israel. And they would recite that to themselves and their families multiple times every day. So let's read it. I'm using the New King James Version. It should work in probably any translation. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That is the cornerstone. That is what you build everything else out of. Now, some of you might think that, oh, well, with such a verse, he'll be going in a certain direction today. But I will not go in that direction, even though we will read a few more of those recitals, because that scripture is actually referenced in the Word of God several times. In the New Testament, in Mark chapter 12, verse 29 and 30, it says, Jesus answered him, the first of all commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. Matthew twenty two thirty seven says, Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord with uh, Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then Luke chapter ten, verse twenty seven says, so he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now, did any of you detect an angle to that commandment in the New Testament verses, Luke, Mark, and Matthew, that was not there in the Old Testament reference, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4? Remember, the Old Testament was primarily written in Hebrew, whereas the New Testament was written in Greek. So, did you notice the word? When I first, exactly. When it comes out, it just pops out, and after you have noticed it, you can never unsee it. Because in the Old Testament, it does not talk about the mind. No, it does talk about it, but not in our understanding of the translation of the word heart. Around 300 BC, the entire Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek by the best scholars of the time, people that spoke both languages fluently. And what's interesting is that in Hebrew, they don't have a word, a separate word for mind. The word that we translate heart primarily is both used as heart and as mind. So when they translate into Greek, or when Jesus is speaking in the New Testament, and his apostles and disciples later record that, 
it is insufficient to use the Greek word for heart. You also have to use the word mind to encompass what is sufficient with the Hebrew heart. In fact, if you look up the commentary, if you go back in the history, because thankfully we have most of the, uh, these writings still, at the time when they were translating, basically what the, what the commentary says is to love God with all your heart, per the Hebrew, is as the LXX, that is the Septuagint, that is the name of the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, per the Septuagint translators, it is simply a metaphorical way of saying that we should love God with our understanding and mind as opposed to how modern readers, and that was 2,000 years ago, saying it was modern for that time, mind to think to love God with our heart or emotions. Now, all of us would associate to love with heart as an emotional perspective. And that is a vital one. That is a fully important one. I'm a very emotional person. I love to worship. I love to pray. I love when I start you know, crying and weeping, not for sadness, but for joy, just feeling the touch of the Holy Spirit on my heart and my life. And I love all of that. And also, in other areas of my life, I can be very emotional. That doesn't mean that I necessarily let it control me, because that's something we all have to learn as adults to not let emotions rule our beings but to be emotional and to associate christianity as an emotional practice is actually a very common modern misconception of what it means to walk a life with god where you love him with your heart because to love god and to serve god and to minister on behalf of god with all your heart is not just an emotional practice, or something that appeals to the emotions. Our mind is supposed to be engaged and involved. And that's important, as we'll find out in some more of these verses. But to continue building the platform and laying the foundation to root this concept that the Hebrew Bible does talk about the heart as both the center of your mind, your understanding, but also your emotions. Let's have a couple of verses. In Proverbs chapter 23, it says, verse 7, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Now, how can you think in your heart? This underlines the point that in the Hebrew, in their understanding, There is no split center between your reason, your understanding, your intellect, and your emotions. That is one and the same. As you think in your heart, so is he. In Job chapter 38, and we'll read this both in the New King James and the King James Version. It says in verse 36, Who hath put wisdom in the inward parts? Or who hath given understanding to the heart, understanding to the heart. Or in New King James, who has put wisdom in the mind? Or who has given understanding to the heart? So what we're seeing here, if you're a Jew, and you hear the Shema, hear, O Israel, love the Lord your God with all your heart, you implicitly understand that that is to mean I engage with God, I love God with all of my understanding, with my intellectual capacity, with all of the brains he made in me, but also all of my emotions. 
He used to rule my entire being. I'm not supposed to be some kind of split individual where I have, you know, as I go about my day and as I go about work or education or whatever it is that I engage with my brain out in the world and then I come for a couple of services every week to get an emotional fix to sustain me in my intellectual journey out there. I know a lot of Christians. That's how they think. And I also know a lot of Christians that with a lack of understanding of the importance of engaging in your Christianity with your intellect, with your mind, with your understanding. They treat their walk with God as simply an emotional one. So if their emotions aren't exactly where they need to be, if there's too much stress or if there's frustration, there's friction in your family, you have issues with your parents or with your spouse or with your kids, if all of the circumstances of life impact and affect your emotions that forces you to struggle in your walk with God. Because, because you're primarily focused on aligning and loving with your heart, your emotions. You have a hard time dealing with God when everything else is so chaotic. And it, you get frustrated with God. Like, God, why am I feeling all this? And then you, it's hard to feel God. And when you don't feel God, you don't feel as motivated maybe to pray. And then you don't feel as motivated to fellowship with your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so as a result, what happens is that you kind of drift over here. But what God is saying, to love with all of your heart, that means to engage with your understanding. And when you engage with your understanding, you are able to interact with God in spite of your emotions. Because our emotions can be treacherous. Our emotions can be deceitful. And I'll use an example. I've experienced this myself. So before I met my wife, I dated a couple of other women. And I could be a little jealous. But not without cause, I would think. Now, so what would happen is that if certain cues, you would say, with one of the girls I dated, I would suddenly start thinking, is she not faithful? Is she drifting away from me? What's going on? And I would feel this jealousy. She was hanging out with a friend of mine's brother, and even though that was all fine, like I was feeling jealousy. Now, in that moment, those feelings are real. Those are valid feelings. Like the reality of my feelings were very real. Comes to find out later that nothing was going on. Now, my feelings were still perceived as real in that moment. And that is a thing that we often struggle with. Is that we immediately revert and default to thinking that our feelings must be telling us the truth even though we know better, even though we have evidence to the contrary, we still feel like our feelings are real. And so in our walk with God, it is very easy to let those real feelings frustrate our relationship with God. But that is what God is saying here in reality, is that you need to engage and love me with your understanding. You need to love me with your mind. You need to engage in such a way that in spite of how you feel, now I would love to always have my emotions and feelings aligned with my walk with God. That there's no turbulence, no issues. But we know that's not the case. But that's where he says, love me with your mind. Engage with your understanding in your everyday walk of your everyday life. Understand what's going on. Talk to me. Mind to mind. Intellect to intellect. 
Remember, we are created in God's image. Everything we are reflects part of his being. There is nothing that is humanity that does not mirror something that is in God. Because we are made in his image after his own likeness. That does not mean that humanity reflects everything God is because God is even more than that. But if we have a mind, it's because God has a mind. If we have an intellect and brain capacity, then that's because he has it. Now, his, his ways are higher than our ways. His thought, thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his plans better than our ways. But still, we reflect that. So what he's saying is, I want to engage with all of you, your entire being, your entire existence, in spite of your feelings that can be treacherous and deceptive. I want to relate with you. Love me with your mind. And then once we start seeing it, as said, it's impossible to unsee it. Then suddenly all of these scriptures in the New Testament start popping out. It says in Romans chapter 7, verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Romans chapter 8, verse 6. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. For he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. 16. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. It comes up everywhere. And then for anyone who was ever a Bible quizzer or memorized scripture at their, in, in their life, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourself, your bodies, a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So by the renewing of your mind, your brain, your intellectual capacity, your understanding, you are able to do what? To prove in your life, for you and for your family, what is that good acceptable and perfect will of God. So it's not just emotional. If we're going to sit around in a prayer meeting and wait until we feel emotionally exactly what we need to do, we could be waiting a very long time. Now there are times when God operates and moves on us that way. But he has given us a mind and understanding to be able to dissect and look into the details and understand. In fact, everything that you have ever learned about Christianity, about spirituality, even if, if you've been filled with the Holy Ghost and you're speaking in tongues, your mind isn't engaged. Your mind is interacting because you are choosing to open up and you're choosing to stop. When you choose to worship, your mind is engaged. When there's an altar call, when you're praying for someone, and you, have, and you know because of your, your seasoned Christian, you know how to pray with someone. You know how to strengthen someone. You know how to 
to, to build them up. That experience, even though your spirit is, your, your sensitivity, your, you can feel in your spirit that God calls you to, to pray for someone. Still, it is your mind that remembers and that it is in your mind that all of your experience has been stored. So you can once again be obedient to that and operate in it with understanding. And you know that when someone is filled with the Holy Ghost, you don't feel it. Your mind assesses the, under, the situation. Ah, they're speaking in a new language that they never learned. They've been filled with the Holy Ghost. So I'm not saying that we should have like a focus on intellectual Christianity. But we need to have the balance. We can't only engage with our emotions or wait around for God to give us what we feel like. Because if we live a Christian walk based on our emotions, it will be a roller coaster like you would not believe. Oh, you would believe it because that's how we all experience it. Our emotions are like that. Unless you're a psychopath, you're probably right here. Like, if you're, if you're a psychopath, you can be here. But that's normal. But God doesn't want your Christian walk to be like that. He wants it to be stable, consistent, persistent. And that every day, your mind will know that he's in control. That even though your feelings might be erupting because of the uncertainty, we lose our job sometimes, or we're between jobs. We have to move somewhere. Death, death of a loved one. People leaving us, betraying us. It is easy to feel very real, tangibly, the frustrations of life. But God says, hey, I've got something for you. If you will love me with your mind, if you will engage with your understanding, you can be anchored in me and anchored in my promises for you, regardless of how you feel, in spite of the circumstances, in spite of the sickness, in spite of the problems. Anchor yourself in the promises I have given you. And that is what can carry us through all of us. Because if we understand, if we know and refuse to let our emotions override what our mind knows to be true about his promises for us, then we can have stability and consistency and continuity. Amen. Let's see here. Paul, I just love Paul because he's just so real. Romans chapter 15 and verse 5. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not just any mind. Like, yes, we have individual minds, but he's also asking us to pursue this one mind, this mind of unity, this mind that we, we can all share. Now, what is that mind? How is that defined? How do we know that we're in the right state of mind? How do we know that we have aligned our own personal understanding the right way to love God with our mind and our understanding? What does that look like? What does the mind of Christ look like? In Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, and I'll read through a great chunk of this chapter because Paul can say it so much better than I can. So uh, I might just give a little bit of commentary, but basically he just says it as it is. Verse 1 of Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, 
If there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but lowliness of mind, to let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And here it comes. Let this mind, that he's just talking about, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, that is a slave, and coming in the likeness of men, God himself, saying, I don't have to be all this glorious, infinite, beautiful self. I'm going to voluntarily restrict myself to the humble manifestation under the exact same circumstances as one of them, these that I love, that I've created. And I'm going to be a slave. And he says, coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance, that is the likeness, as a man, being a true human, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee shall bow, those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason also, Be glad and rejoice with me. So to paraphrase, we all have a mind. And we're all to love God with our mind. But we would like to know what that standard is. What is the standard of that mind? What is the metric we use to measure up against? This is the mind. This is the ideal. This is what we should strive for. This is where God allows us to engage with our human will to voluntarily align it with his way of thinking. Now, this is sacrificial. This is serving others over self. This is being willing, as Paul says, just like Jesus was, to be willing to put to the point of death on behalf of his people and his kingdom and his name. Now, 
God will call, maybe not call any of us. We live in a very peaceful and prosperous society. And still there is great liberty and freedom of religion in this country. We are not persecuted. But do you know what the number one persecuted demographic in the world is today? Christians. Christians in the Middle East, Christians in China, Christians in places of Africa, even majority Christian nations like Nigeria. The, the Christians in the northern part, in the more rural parts, are brutally persecuted. If you're in Sudan, if you're in Egypt, the Coptic Christians, they're being killed and persecuted. In Syria, even in places of, of more democratic institutions. In Chechnya, Christians are being persecuted. So it is the number one persecuted demographic in the world. What does that mean? It means that a lot of Christians, even though that's a remote possibility for people like us that live in such a peaceful, wonderful place like America is, there is a chance that you might die for your faith. And that should be, even though we should not want it, even though there are some radicals that are like, you know, if God, you know, I'll go into the bush and there was a missionary that was killed off of uh, an island in uh, Southeast Asia not too long ago because he was insistent that he was going to preach the gospel to these people. And they shot him with bow and arrow, and he died. So some people, they, they, that's how they want to go. And Paul almost borderlines like that sometimes. If I die, I'll be happy. Because it meant that you guys, you guys got it. So I'm willing to do it. He's also said, I'm willing to be lost. He, he even said it. I'm willing to be lost and go to hell if that would save everyone else. That was his passion. And that's the gold standard. That's what we're striving toward. That is what we are looking to. There are a bunch of more scriptures here that I could read out that would just underline and reinforce and those that, are, that would like those verses, I will be happy to send you my notes. Because there's about two dozen more here, and uh, we could be here for another hour. And I will be respectful of everyone's time. But just a couple before I go into my closing. It says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And it says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. There it is again. Together. Now, in Hebrew, that would be one word. But here we have the heart and mind. God's peace, that's a promise. Which means that no matter what the circumstances around you are, you can choose to align yourself and say, God, I need your peace. And that peace will sink into your mind. Now, sometimes it will come into your mind before it will come into your heart. That's why we have be still. First Peter chapter 1, verse 13 shows us that we have the opportunity to choose this for ourselves. We are not dependent on other external factors to do what is right when it comes to the exercise of the mind because in verse 13 of first peter 1 it says therefore gird up the loins of your mind now what does that mean well what it means is that they would wear robes 
And ropes aren't very practical, especially if you're going to climb ladders and be very active. So what they would do, what the, the men would do, they would take these wide ropes and they would circle them around, bring them up here, and they would take that whole thing and they would tie it together in a big knot right here so that they basically like create pants almost for, for work. Meaning that get ready for the dirty work. That's what gird up your loins mean. To gird up your loins means get ready for some busy work that may not be appropriate for just a loose robe hanging around because you're going to be more active than that. That is what this means. So it means gird up the loins of your mind, meaning get your mind ready to work. Prepare your mind. Choose to put your mind in the place it needs to be. Be sober. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Amen. That brings me to what I will use as the last verse. For today. Because we believe that we li- li- live in the end times. And what does that mean? We believe that, obviously, Jesus is closer to coming back than he- at any point in history. I mean, that's just obvious because it's going that direction. But we are very near compared to the people that lived 150, 25 years ago. The stuff that's happening in this world is giving us all the indications that, you know what? It may not be that long until Jesus comes back. And the Bible is filled with prophecy. A lot of this, not to discourage us, but to prepare us that things could get really rough. And we could also be in a situation where even America might be a rough place to be. We don't know that. We have no guarantees. We live in an increasingly polarized country. And people are choosing to get into their tribal mindset and it's all about others and us and it's increasingly growing distance. So who knows? I don't know. That's for sure. But I look at the signs. I'm like, we have no guarantees, folks. And so what is important to realize is that when Bible talks, the Bible talks about tribulation, when it talks about persecution, when it talks about hardship, when it talks about wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and disasters and famine, death by the sword, some scriptures refers to a, bill, a conflict starting in the Middle East by the river Euphrates. I don't know when that's going to happen, but it says that when the sixth seal is broken and by, by the river Euphrates, the consequence of that is that a third of mankind will die. Now, we're approaching 8 billion people, so that's 2.7 billion people. That's a lot of people. And sword, famine, disaster, all kinds of stuff. This is not about prophecy today. But there's one scripture that stands out. That when I did a word study on it, it really made me realize this is how all Christians, regardless of where they live, this is something we all have in common. This is a condition that we all share. And that we need God to help us with. Because regardless of the, f- the physical nature of the persecution that we experience, there's something that the, the externalities are not as important. Because 
if someone came up with a gun, put it to your head, and said, deny Christ or go home, pop, you, you be out of here. That's a promotion. You go straight to Jesus. So it's not as much about the externalities, but it's about what we do while we are alive. So in, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, says, And he shall speak, speaking about the Antichrist, and he shall speak great words against the Most High, and he shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and a dividing of time. Now the breakdown of the chronology here we will leave for another time. But I want you to look at the second part of that, sen- that sentence. And shall wear out the saints. If you go into the Hebrew of that word. It is the Hebrew word Bela. That makes Bala. Specifically in this context. The root and then the application. What does that mean? The root word means to wear out, to wear away, to harass constantly. In the specific form it is used in this verse, it speaks specifically and used only, sorry, this, this application of the word is only used regarding to a mental state. So when it talks about wearing out the saints or persecute as in the New King James, the wearing out of the saints or the persecute, it is specifically and exclusively used for the wearing out or distressing and harassing of the mind. And that is suddenly how you can have a universal church around the world, regardless of their external circumstances, the enemy, the spirit of the Antichrist and the forces that are at work, harass our minds wearing out and persecuting our minds and not all of it is spiritual directly but the sum of it all being stuck in atlanta traffic on a friday afternoon going up 400 now that wears out your mind the key is that no matter what your life is like and where it is God has told us ahead of time, there will be a time coming closer to the end where the enemy shall persecute, harass, wear out in a mental capacity, in your mind, in your understanding, and try to undermine your faith. That is where the falling away comes. If you go into the New Testament, into the Revelation, it talks about the great falling away. It talks about people, people that stop believing, people that walk away from God. This is the persecution that is causing that. Because most situations we hear about where someone comes with a gun and says, hey, deny Jesus or I'll kill you. How often do you hear about those that say, oh, no, I, I don't believe in Jesus? Uh-uh-uh. There's something that happens, even the fear, of course, happens all over the world. People are like, you know, okay, I'll go. Like, God, I'll come to Jesus. How often do we hear about story, uh, these stories about denial? We don't. 
So that's the extreme. That is not what we're talking about. We're talking about the nonviolent, mostly. The, the mental harassment that can be a combination of both spiritual attacks, but also the regular aspects of life. It wearing us out to the point of not being able to stand up on that last day, having endured all. So I want to close with this before we all come forward to the altar. Where is your mind at today? What do you need? What kind of choices do you need to make in your mind today so that you can truly and fully love the Lord with all of your mind, with all your understanding, to the point of it dictating your Christian walk with Him? And also, what do you need to do to make sure that you have girded up the loins and prepared the, the, the loins of your mind so that you can avoid the persecution and harassment making you fall and stumble? Because it is possible. It is possible to align your mind with God and His mind by the Spirit so you can become an overcomer regardless of how difficult your life is today. Because for every measure of sin, every measure of shortcoming, there is a greater measure of grace. For every measure of difficulty and hardship in your day, there's a greater measure of God's strength. He said, as your days are, so also shall your strength be. He will match it. He will match more than one for one. The strength and the mercy and the grace you need to overcome every shortcoming, every trial and every tribulation. But he's waiting on you to make up your mind. Because if you will love him with all of your mind and say, God, I choose to. I don't care how I feel. I don't care how bleak the outset is right now. I don't care about any of that. I don't care about my family being difficult. Like, I'm just going to choose to do what's right. And I'm going to allow you to tell me who I am. I'm going to allow you to tell me what purpose you have for my life. I'm going to allow you to tell me so I understand it, regardless of how I feel. Everything I need to do so that I can be an overcomer. If we can all stand. God is so good. <clears throat>